If anyone's out there, blink twice and keep listening Blink twice and keep listening Hi Teamsters, this is Carrie Ann And I'm Allison And this is Podcast Without an Audience Where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality Or not Or not Still, we're figuring it all out How are you? (laughs) I'm good. It's been a long week. It's been really good, and I am really excited to be doing this. We've had some really good feedback. I think so, too. We've got our first fan. Yes! (laughs) Yes! It's working out. So the audience, it's like, build build it and they will come? Mm -hmm. Build your own adventure? Choose your own adventure. What what are you talking about? Hmm? I was referencing the Bible, God's book. (laughs) I thought you were referencing Field of Dreams. No. If you build it, he will come. That's not the Bible. That's what it means. Oh, I was thinking about the Ark. Oh, good thing we have a history and psychology podcast, huh? <laughs> <laughs> We're completely legit. We are. We are film aficionados. We read books. I've you know read things. a couple books. Okay. So something else that I thought of, and my cat is hanging around. Um, her name is Dolly. As in Dolly Parton. Yes, she's a sweet angel, so you might hear her. But um, anyway, I don't want to be like a bearer of bad news, but did you know that Mr. Von Trapp I almost texted you about it. I almost texted you too, but I was like, no, we have to save it for the podcast. I know. I had the same thought, and I completely forgot about it. So what's the significance of that movie to you? I mean, it changed your life. It did. It was my first musical, I think, ever, that I liked and watched Mm -hmm. on repeat. Sure. I'm now a musical fanatic. Yeah. I have been to Austria. Yeah. Uh, My grandfather was in World War II. Yeah. There are a lot of... I feel like I'm missing the one that you are expecting me to say. Is there no, a thing? No, there's not. Oh, oh, okay. No. This, just that you're Liesl uh, reincarnated. I, I might be Liesl reincarnated. Yeah. Um, I was once 16 going on 17. Sure. I'm now much older than that. Mm-hmm. Um, She's, you're 29 going on I'm 30. 30. Mm-hmm. Gotta uh, get some eye cream. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> <laughs> How depressing. <laughs> but getting back to the significance yes. of The Sound of Music which was so impactful for my formative years. My mom and I still sing it yeah. constantly. So um, wholesome it's, you are. Thank you. Thank you. I was very different than everyone else I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not a theater. I mean, there was a theater in my hometown, but mm-hmm. like the theater kids and the creative kids were not cool, unlike your experience in high school where the creative artsy kids were the cool ones. Yeah, athletics so. were not cool. Arts was definitely cool. Which I think is just one of the many ways that our the way we were raised is, is so different, yeah. um, even though we are also very similar. So what was the significance of The Sound of Music for you? Oh, uh, passing the mic. Passing we do a mic. metaphorical pass the mic situation. Like, I, I often hold up a pretend microphone. And now I, you which have I think that's a, a real really, microphone. Now I have a real <laughs> microphone. It's in front of me. <laughs> um, it's adorable, by the way. It's like a tiny alien. I know, it's so cute. It's so cute. <laughs> um, I, I mean, the, I don't have, I don't know. My significance would be that, I mean, it's a fabulous movie. So and, good, yeah. Um, the thing that I remember most about it is that it came on two VHS tapes. Did it really? So I was really familiar with the first half of it uh-huh. and had no idea that Nazis were involved at all. 
until my adult life where <laughs> I finished the actual thing and fully understood. I was like, it's a happy movie. Everybody's fine. Everybody's singing. Right? And then fucking Nazis show up out of nowhere, to be fair. It, I mean, going back and watching it as an adult and you see like all the stuff leading up to the Nazis mm-hmm. randomly coming in in the second act... Um, yeah, so you never made it to the second act. Yeah, you were stuck in the first act where Julie Andrews is falling in love with the captain and they have a whole bunch of babies. They're his babies I was from his say, first wife. I was like, did I miss that too? <laughs> first of all, how many children can one woman have? How many were there? There were seven in the movie. However, this I don't know that we've ever talked about this. I have actually seen the Von Trapp Stop. family singers Stop. perform what? twice. What? So these are the great-grandchildren of the actual Captain and Maria Von Trapp. So... This and they're, like, out on the road. They're, like, the Partridge family kind of thing? There's four of them. Um, uh, and they... Are they just, like, the whitest kids you've ever seen? They're so white. They are really talented singers. I'm sure they are. their songs. Um, but they live somewhere in, like, the Midwest. Which they live in the United States? Yeah, so Captain and Maria von Trapp, when they fled Austria, bada bing, bada boom, ended up in the Midwest. Well, that wasn't in the movie either. That was on the third VHS tape? What the fuck? <laughs> Whatever. Wow. You know, it's so funny because I remember in college you were like, I went to a concert this weekend and I was like, what concert? And you were like, Celtic woman. And I was like, we should be friends. <laughs> Because that's fucking weird. That's like being like, so I saw Enya over the weekend, and uh, it was pretty cool. Um, if Enya had come well, to Greensboro, I probably would have seen Enya, too. She's uh, fun fact Rooney. She's never done a concert. She's a recluse. I love that. Yes. She's like the only woman or only person who's like never gone on tour and still has like platinum albums and stuff. Oh, my gosh. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. How are you more up on Celtic music than I am? She's like, you know, some like, I don't know. I always think of like Lord of the Rings. Let's get into what we're getting into today. You got a topic for me or what? I I may have written a little something down. You may have. Just for you. Totally unprepared. I had no idea we were doing this. Totally unprepared. I just showed up with food and hoped that you would take me in. Mm -hmm. Um, That typically works. My topic for this week, you may actually be familiar with this topic, and I kind of hope you are because I think it would be really interesting to talk about and to get your perspective. But I'm going to break the rules just a little bit, and I'm going to talk about intersectionality on our podcast about intersectionality before we talk about intersectionality on our podcast about intersectionality. <laughs> okay. Kind of a labyrinth situation, kind of That's, a David Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I am currently the babe with the power. <laughs> So I'm going to be talking about the connection between physical health and mental health. Ah. And in a later episode, we will talk about like models of disability and benefits of looking at things from a societal perspective versus an individual perspective. All right. But today. Today. This day, we will be talking about things from an individual perspective. Do you prefer to work in teams or alone? When we were in school, I did all the work when we were in teams. Yes. Who came up with a group paper? Group papers are the worst. I mean, it's not a real thing. It's like somebody like you writes the whole thing and everybody else just fucks off somewhere. I mean, even through grad school, that was the whole model Mm -hmm. was I went to grad school and still wrote the paper for all the people who should have been writing the paper, which I don't hate because I would rather do it myself and like have control. I might be a bit of a control freak, TM. 
first thing we are going to do is lay some groundwork about indivisible, mm-hmm. meaning invisible disabilities. So they are disabilities that are not immediately apparent. They are typically chronic and significantly impair normal life activities. Think like people experiencing chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, people with lupus, arthritis, traumatic brain injury, Lyme's disease. Um, so basically it's it's an underlying chronic illness that you wouldn't be able to recognize. Exactly. Right exactly. So the key here is that it's a disability that creates a challenge for a person who has it, but the reality of that disability is not easily recognized or acknowledged. So there is a certain privilege associated with being able to pass as non-disabled. Mm-hmm. And we're, we'll talk about ableism. There's a little bit in hear about it, but mostly that'll be saved for another episode, which also leads into models of disability, and we can just keep wormholing from there. The disadvantage, of course, is that if you need help or support, um, it won't be immediately provided to you. So people, like, not believing in your disability. Right, exactly. There's a lack of understanding that can really impact your social capital. So you might be perceived by society as being lazy or weak or unmotivated. Well, and you might get into this also so Forgive me if I'm stepping on your toes, but a lot of times women are not perceived are not taken seriously as far as like medical concern, right? When they're experiencing pain, I actually don't get into that, so that's a really great point. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, um, especially especially women. I've heard a lot of horror stories about women having like cysts and things that like are yeah. bursting, and they're like something is super duper wrong. Absolutely, and basically the the perception that they have is that the doctors just kind of are like, well, see how it goes and come back and we'll talk about it next time. Right. And even people of color have experienced this and doctors not believing that they experience pain in the way that white people experience pain, which is a whole other issue entirely. Um, But not being given pain meds or anesthesia during surgery because they just didn't believe that people experienced pain. Holy shit. Do you have an example in mind? There are a few examples, um, especially like let's go back to, you know, there's an article written about uh, people of color being diagnosed with schizophrenia as kind of a catch all for mental health and then being put in institutions and asylums and then electric shock therapy or other things and not being given any pain meds around that, Mm -hmm. which, as you can imagine, is not a good model to follow. The whole eugenics thing, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Um, Again, there was a lack of pain meds management. It's just, it's pervasive. If you're not a white man, then you don't experience pain in the same way. And therefore your pain is invalid. This got really (laughs) deep, really fast. Okay. This is a comedy podcast. This is a comedy podcast. I feel like I've done a lot of leading up into my topic and I'm going to actually get there in just a second. So we can already see how a person's disability might impact their mental health. In addition to chronic pain or fatigue, or having someone's social capital constantly being called into question impacts your mental health. Um, Additionally, more and more people are recognizing that mental health can also be a chronic and invisible disability, like addiction, eating disorders, personality disorders, anxiety, depression, autism spectrum disorder, bipolar disorder, so on and so forth. They're exhausting. Mm -hmm. Like having anything going on in your body is exhausting. And it's also hard for people to relate to. Absolutely. are are, um, people who are quote unquote healthy. People who perceive themselves to be healthy. It's hard. It's really hard for some people to put themselves in those shoes. You're exactly right. Which I think is, again, part of the issue. And we're all we're building up to something, I promise. (laughs) Um, 
So as someone who has experienced chronic mental health issues for many years, I can personally attest to how difficult this shit is from day to day. Canceling plans, having to text your best friend before visiting her to let her know that you're having a bad mental health day. What? I may have done that this morning and asking her if she might be able to run interference at some point on a podcast. That's what this giant bottle of champagne is. Thank goodness for- Which is like our theme. Right. Pop and champagne. I mean, we've had- I mean- all whopping two episodes we've had uh, this this champagne. You're right, and we're just comforting because also you know it's a it's a sophisticated beverage and and I'm, and we're I'm sophisticated to- ladies. Well, I'm I'm believing so in this very moment. I I think that that's probably pretty accurate. Thank you. In my sweatpants. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the intersection of all of these issues is a communication issue. How do you tell someone without an invisible disability what it's like to have a disability in a way that they can understand and then begin to destigmatize the fallacy that people are just lazy? Question mark. Question mark. I'm going to tell you the answer. Okay, good. This is where spoon theory was born. Have you Uh, heard of spoon theory? I've heard of it. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about Spoon Theory. Tell me about it. Because I think it's so fascinating. In 2003, a woman named Christine Mistiano Mm -hmm. uh, was out to dinner with her best friend, Mm -hmm. power to the women and best friends. She has lupus and she took her meds with dinner as usual. Her best friend, who had been with her to like multiple doctor's appointments and kind of been involved since she was diagnosed with lupus, turned to her and said, what is it like to to have lupus. And Christine was really surprised by this. And she was like, well, you know, I mean, I take meds every day and like my hands hurt because they get swollen a lot Mm -hmm. and it's an autoimmune disease. I actually don't know a whole lot about lupus otherwise, but those are kind of the basics. And um, her friend was like, cool, but that's bullshit. What's it like to have? Tell me what it's like. You're my best friend. Like, tell me. Right. It's very similar to conversations that you and I have had where I'm like, well, this is the surface level thing. And you're like, no, but I want I want more. Tell me more. How can we relate? So Christine, they were sitting in a restaurant and Christine picks up all the spoons that are on the table. There are 12 spoons. And I want to know what restaurant. What? Oh, this is some fine dining shit right there. <laughs> They're like, this is for the butter. This is for the ice cream. This is for each sorbet serving you'll have in between every single thing. Exactly. Got it. So they're having the real New York experience. They're having the New York experience with multiple levels of fine dining. There are 12 spoons between the two of them on this table. Wow. In a later article, I read that she may have picked up multiple spoons from multiple tables. I like to think it was 12 spoons from one table. See, I want to I wanna envision her, like, going around being like, can I borrow a spoon? <laughs> <laughs> being like, you know, people from New Jersey are like, oh, this is, you know. But anyways, so she collected all the spoons on the table and handed them to her friends. And she explained that the difference between being sick and being healthy is having to make choices and think about the things the rest of the world doesn't have to. Healthy non-disabled people have unlimited possibilities. They have tons of energy every morning. They can wake up and just do whatever the hell they want to do. They don't have to think about it. They have an unlimited number of spoons. As a person with an invisible disability or really any disability, you start your day with a specific number of spoons. You would start your day with 12 spoons. That number might not be the same tomorrow, Mm-hmm. But for this moment, you have 12 spoons. Okay. At that point, Christine's friend was like, cool, if I only have 12 spoons, can I have more spoons? Because I've got more than 12, you know, things to do mm-hmm. today. She's like, says, it's like that genie mentality where you wish for more wishes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this is. And Christine's like, nah, bro, this is, you get what you get. 
12 is 12 sufficient. Days to midnight, that's all you exactly. get. Exactly. 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> um, so certain tasks will cost you spoons. Depending on your disability, getting out of bed and making food so that you can take your meds might cost you anywhere from like one to three spoons. So if you've only got 12 spoons in a day and you've already used even one before you get up and take a shower. If you used a quarter of your spoons. Exactly. I just did. I counted on my fingers. (laughs) (laughs) Taking a shower because, you know, if you have lupus and your joints are swollen, Reaching up to wash your hair and then reaching down to shave your legs might cost you additional spoons. Whereas someone who is able to really enjoy a shower and doesn't feel pain while showering, it might not cost them a spoon. So it's very individualized. Mm -hmm. But the goal at the end of the day is to have not spent all of your spoons. You've got to like keep one in your back pocket, so to speak. Right. You never want to run out because sure. if you run out while you're driving, yeah, oh yeah, you're screwed. I mean, pull over, take a nap, yeah. wake up, and try again later. 2003 spoon theory was born, and then so it came from her. It came from did she Christine. write about it? She did on her blog. Oh, blogs. Okay, she's getting a lifetime series very soon. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's been. Almost 20 years. Like yeah. 2003, it's now 2021. Oh my God. Holy that's so shit. so weird. What? Yikes. <laughs> I had not actually thought that through before also, I said it. Totally switching gears, but that means that 9 11 is 20 years ago. 9 11? That was 2001. 2001. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just to kind of bring it down just for a second. Because talking about disabilities is right. such an upper. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, time is weird. Time is so weird. Also, I read this article about a girl walking into a bar and showing the bartender her ID. She asked if he needed her to take it out of her, like, wallet. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I can see the one. And just think about that. We're now. No. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. No. People born in the year 2000 are now almost 21 almost years 21. old. 21. Wow. Time is so strange. So weird. Not linear. I, I just feel like. You just push a button. I don't know. And you jump forward 15 years in the future. And also this whole year has completely stood still. Yeah. So much has happened. And yet my life has not. I mean, it's I've been inside for like 365 days because pretty much next week is like when shutdown happened. Yeah, because it was right at my birthday. birthday. I'm a Pisces. Pisces. Uh, For all you Pisces listeners. What is that? What are the characteristics of a Pisces? We are very creative, emotional. We're the most mature sign of the Zodiac. We're the last sign of the Zodiac, so we have characteristics from all of the signs before us. But the biggest and most defining characteristic of Pisces Mm -hmm. is that our symbol is two fish Mm -hmm. and swimming in opposite directions. And it's like Pisces are always experiencing some kind of conflict because we're always like battling and chasing two ideas at the same time. That sounds restless. It's a lot of work. I have less spoons now than I did at the beginning of the day. Uh, and you, I mean, since we're disclosing Zodiac information, yeah. we'll get back to spoons in a minute. You are a, a Capricorn. Yes. So uh, we're just right all the time. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I think you might be wrong about that. It's debatable. Refer to rule number one. Right. <laughs> Let's go back. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to our Zodiac signs um, and dating profiles at some point. So Spoon Theory was born almost 20 years ago. And so were a category of people who self-identify as spoonies. Um, Mm. These are people with chronic illness and invisible disabilities. And they have, you can put hashtag spoonie on anything and find other people who are also spoonies. Like they're, uh, what do they call the 
like lists where you can chat with people. I don't chat rooms. Sure, chat rooms for Spoonies for like pretending we're in like 1998. They still do chat rooms, don't they? Are there servers where people talk? I don't know. I don't actually know much. Facebook groups. Facebook groups for Spoonies. There have been a few attempts to really like isolate things that might cost people spoons so that non-spoonies will understand this better. For example, there are social spoons. People with social anxiety, it might cost them more spoons to have to oh, interact with people. That's tough. Yeah. And I and I really do think that like after this year, there's gonna be a lot of struggle with with being in social spaces. Oh, absolutely. In crowds. Yeah. And I think we're all just kind of weirded out by other people right now, especially and and those who experienced those anxieties before. It's just going to be completely fucking amplified. You're exactly right. In fact, I made a new friend recently at work and a new next door neighbor friend. And I'm like, no, you have so many new friends. I have so many new friends, which is great because I'm also super introverted, except I don't know how to talk to them. So, like, I walked up to my next door neighbor's house and knocked on the door with a glass of wine. And I was like, I don't know how you feel about this, but do you want to hang out? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. There you go. So we're all being weird together, mm-hmm. um, which I works. I think that's not weird. I think that's really nice. Oh, thank None you. None of my neighbors talk to me. Well, you live in a big complex. I Sweet. live in a little little village. There are also, like, physical activity spoons, you know, how if you have um, a disability that impacts your movement, that could be really difficult. Executive functioning spoons for people with ADHD, ADD, autism spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. anything else. And the shittiest part of all of this theory is that you cannot get spoons back. Right. So, like, once you've spent your spoons for the day, I don't know why I picked, I feel like my lisp is coming out a little <laughs> bit extra. <laughs> Spoons is a, it's a tricky one. Once you've spent your spoons for the day. (laughs) Um, I hope people will find this endearing. (laughs) They will. You can save them. Mm -hmm. So if you have spoons left over, keep them in your back pocket. You, you can roll over like maybe a certain amount of spoons, Mm -hmm. like your vacation days. (gasps) You can have a certain number, but no more, no less. How do you know the policy I wrote? That's exactly <laughs> what it says. Mine says use them or lose them. So I like yours much better. You can also borrow spoons from the next day. Like if you know that you have an opportunity to just stay home and not do X, Y, and Z tomorrow, mm-hmm. then you might be able to take a spoon from tomorrow. But that means you're going to have less spoons for tomorrow. This might be completely insensitive to say. This sure. reminds me of Weight Watchers. Like I have a certain number of points. <laughs> That I can spend, and I'm just saving them all up for Friday night when I can have my giant bottle of champagne and pizza. With you yep. And I saved them podcast. for pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I. It's very. It's a similar concept. Mm-hmm. Weight Watchers was actually inspired by Spoon Theory. Right. Right. Yeah. So progressive. I know. <laughs> it is a finite number. Anyways, getting back to ableism, because really, I mean, Spoon Theory was developed by one person. She's phenomenal. She has a blog. I highly recommend that you go and read her blog. We will link it in our Instagram post for this week so that you can go and find her blog. I will also include some interesting infographic about Spoonies. So go and learn more. Shout out to your Spoonie friends. They are not okay. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's struggling. (laughs) No one is okay. No one is okay. Just assume nothing. Yeah. Okay. So getting back to ableism, which... Uh, is actually one of my favorite topics. Ableism assumes that non-disabled people are the standard and therefore excluding disabled people from spaces and conversations means that we're contributing to taking away spoons without giving people the benefit of the doubt. The idea that disabled people are by fault inferior when in reality it's just another way for the mind or body to be. 
The other issue here is the impact of a spoon of being a spoonie and not having the same social capital that a non-spoonie might have and how judgment is placed on those individuals who aren't able to produce the same output and resources and therefore don't have the same value to society. Mm. Which mm. I mean, I think you and I both know disabled people um, who are contributors to society in a million amazing and wonderful ways Mm -hmm. when provided with the right supports. And so I'm thinking particularly about the deaf community. Yeah. And about the culture surrounding that and such, um, such a community culture and pride for, um, for themselves and no I think you're exactly right and that's one of the things I want to come back to when we talk about cultural models of disability because the deaf community really led that charge yes um well and that's the thing that I love too is that they they're like nothing is wrong with us no um you know we, the it's only just thing another way of being and exactly there's such a pride and even the cochlear implant um argument you know about waiting until children are old enough to make that decision for themselves i know is a big thing yeah consent is mandatory in every area of your life especially when it comes to surgeries and implanting young children all of which i mean you and i agree with this on every level i think another background piece of information here that might be relevant is that i went to grad school at um a liberal arts university for the deaf Mm-hmm. and have worked within the deaf community for a long time. Um, I have hearing loss myself and really identify with a lot of deaf culture, and I appreciate deaf culture, um, and I have learned so much from yeah. just being in the deaf community. So I think you're exactly right. Well, and I think it's also really powerful that you've been able to, you know, somebody who, who has hearing loss but can also hear, having gone to a for your master's program, all of your classes were in sign language and you were to develop relationships with people who were, went on to become all sorts of different careers and paths yeah. and that, you know, that it's, that it's normal. That people exist. People exist. People with differing uh, realities exist. And you're absolutely right. And like I said, disability topics, ableism, autism, which is the oppression of deaf people, not to be confused with autism. Right. So... Autism has a D, autism has a T. We'll come back to all of these things time and time again, I'm sure, just because I do love talking about it. Well, and the other thing is that, um, so when we were, so we took four semesters of sign language together. Right. Or took four, so I was like one less than being able to minor in sign language, which was the deaf culture class, which I really wish that I took. But one of the things that I took away from it was that there's like an openness in the deaf community where it's like, how much did your car cost? And you're like, oh, it cost $20,000. Where in the right. hearing community, it's like super rude to talk about just like a much more forward and like open and honest language. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's much more direct. And I actually have a quick story that I'm going to share about that a little bit. But the deaf community is so focused on sharing information mm-hmm. and making sure that information is accessible. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I noticed after I spent some time at the school for the deaf and the university for the deaf that whenever someone would walk up and I was in the middle of a conversation, I would immediately catch up the person who just walked up and say, oh, this is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want people to, to be left out sure. because, you know, deaf people are already so oh, yes. far removed from so much information. Absolutely. So when I came back to Greensboro after my grad program, I remember walking up to a, or yeah, I was walking up to a group of people and I was like, oh, so what are we talking about? And they just kind of looked at me and I was like, oh, 
That's a deaf culture thing. That's right. not a hearing Let me thing. Cue you in, yeah. You don't need to update me. That's your own personal, you know. <laughs> they were talking about you, right? They were absolutely up. talking. It got very quiet. It was right. very awkward. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll get into all of that. So I do want to share one quick story. I was at a conference for disability rights and advocacy in mm-hmm. 2018, 17, 19, somewhere mm-hmm. around there. Time is irrelevant. Things were normal. Things were normal. There were no masks. I was working at the school for the deaf at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was there with like deaf coworkers. Uh, we, there were a few interpreters and we walked into our first session and the room was like a large auditorium mm-hmm. type place, conference okay. room. Yeah. And it was completely dark. Like all the lights were off. There were no tables or chairs. There was just a presenter kind of standing at the front of the room talking. One of my deaf colleagues asked the interpreter if she'd be willing to turn on the lights. And then there was a man with a walker and he raised his hand and he asked, if we could pull out the chairs that were like lining the side of the room. Yeah. So we all went and got chairs. And then finally we ended up with, uh, there was a, a blind woman in the room who needed to be able to set down her uh, typing machine. Mm-hmm. And I forget what they're called. I'm so sorry. But she needed to be able to like type and yeah. take notes. And so she requested the tables. And eventually we had everything that we needed. And the point was that people with disabilities are socially encouraged to ask or required to ask for the things that they need. Yes. Whereas people without disabilities just kind of expect everything to happen for them. Oh, and, so there was no chairs in the room, nothing. It right. was like, you got to speak up if you, if you exactly. need. Exactly. Wow. And only people with disabilities spoke up and asked for the things that they need. Sure. But if you're a spoonie, how... How many spoons how does that? Exactly. How much is it going to cost you? Exactly. Ex- I mean, and I'm sure it's exhausting. So I... This is, I w- I've never been able to dissect it this way. It's blowing my mind. I'm so glad that, that we're having this conversation because yeah. I don't think we would have had this conversation in this way sure. without having a podcast sure. because I don't randomly research things and bring them to you and I'm like, here, let's discuss. (laughs) It occurs to me that we need to do some things with our podcast to make sure that they remain accessible for all of my people out there, all of our people out there. Mm -hmm. If you are out there, we need to make sure that our episodes are transcribed. And I think that there's some technology out there that will, you know, transcribe and we can just go back and edit. We also need to make sure that all of our pictures that we're posting have image descriptions for blind listeners to be able to know what's happening in the picture absolutely and that's something i'm so bad about doing um and it has been brought to my attention recently so it's something i really want to work on and i felt like we could work on together let's do it we're trying to be really intentional about all of this so that's my that's my topic for this week i love it thank you i totally agree i think um that was a really important thing to bring up and also just kind of open up a little bit about yourself too because i think that's important for for people to understand, you know, where you're coming from, where we're coming from, right. and, and also what kind of audience we're going to connect with, too. Yeah, and the things that are important to us and that we're passionate about. Who? Yeah. Who? Yeah. All right, you ready for some history? I'm ready. All right, and <clears throat> we have some ASMR. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready for my story? Let's get it. Okay. So I'm going to be doing um, kind of the life and death of, of King Tutankhamun or King Tut. Wow. Yes. Wow. I'm really excited. I am too. This is one of the things that I, um, this is like one of the, the stories that I was like, no, I, that's, this is why I want to do a podcast. 
This is a great story. I actually only remember what I learned in middle school about King Tutankhamen. Perfect. And it was minimal at best. Well, what year was that? Uh (laughs) (laughs) There might have been some changes since then. Ooh. Well, maybe around that time. Anyway, we will get into it. Um, Okay. So we're going to start out with uh, a little bit of family drama. I love that. Spell the tea. Mm -hmm. So... King Tutankhamun, or he was a pharaoh of Egypt. We all know that right. we're, we're in Egypt right now in like the but pharaoh 1300 BC. Yeah, pharaoh Tutankhamun doesn't really roll off the tongue quite as well right. as king. King Tut, that's king what they Tut. call him. Yep. That's his, you know, street name. His alias. Right. So his father was the pharaoh Akhenaten. So his mother was his father's sister. Okay. So that meant that... So his, his mother was his father's sister. So his aunt and his grandma are the same person. No, maternal and paternal <laughs> grandparents <laughs> yeah, right. are the same people. Right, exactly. The, the family tree goes straight up. So it's, yes, it's problematic at, at best. So it's interesting because she was never identified by name, like when they were, um, because we'll get into this later, but there was this huge ex- excavation of a lot of the tombs um, in the area at the time. So they knew about Pharaoh Akhenaten, but his uh, King Tut's mother was known as the Younger Lady. Ooh, mm-hmm. scandalous. So, you know, there, it was a little bit of inbreeding happening. So what could go wrong? Uh, so Tutankhamun took the throne at age eight. Okay. Eight or nine. So there's a little bit of discrepancy about a year or right, so. Right, right. Kind of throughout the narrative here. But he took the the throne when he was a baby. Well, and that's the thing at the time, too. It wasn't even like a decision. It was just like, oh, here you go. Birthright, you know, here you go. I hope he had some really good advisors. So we'll get into that as well. Oh, good. So Tutankhamun was a really small guy. So when they dug up his grave, um, he was like 5'6". I mean, he was... He was five, six, eight. Wait, when did he die? We'll get into it. Okay. He had large front incisors mm-hmm. and an overbite, which all of his family members had, probably because they were all they all fucked each other. <laughs> um, and after his death, when they analyzed the cloth in his tomb, like his loincloth, basically, they knew that he had a really narrow waist and rounded hips. Huh. Yeah. So he, he was kind of delicate. He was not like your typical king. He was like a archetype vampire pretty boy. Right. Like Edward Cullen in the first one with an overbite. I have in my notes. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. He must have been a killer with the ladies. <laughs> uh, I but, was thinking that actually. Mm-hmm. But he has like like King Goffrey or King Joffrey, Joffrey. Joffrey yep. Vibes a little bit. Okay. Um kind of Hated him. Fronzy. Yep. Um, so just to kind of like piggyback off of that, he he married his own half sister. Mm-hmm. Okay, very on brand. On brand. Yes, but on a sad note, though, during their marriage, they did lose two daughters, one at three months premature, and the other one shortly after birth. Um, so during his reign, he decided to make a lot of changes that directly reversed some of the decisions that his own father had done during his reign. One of the largest changes was that King Tut's father essentially forbid worship of any other god mm-hmm. and solely focused the worship on the god Aten. Is which that was, who he was named after or who was named after him? So that's who he was originally named after. Uh-huh. And then he ended up changing his name. Oh, okay. 
So, and Aten was like a really obscure god. And can you imagine like growing up and like believing very adamantly about one particular thing and then the king coming in and being like, psych, (laughs) (laughs) we're changing everything around, you know, very King Henry VIII, like all of a sudden. I am, I am, yeah. It's the Church of England. I, I can only imagine that from the position of having grown up in a very conservative Christian small town, mm-hmm. not following along with the traditional Christian values, mm-hmm. um, and then moving to another place where I was able to kind of mm-hmm. explore that more. Mm-hmm. So I've opposite experience. Sure. So Aten at the time was considered to be a really obscure god. And Aten was considered to be an aspect of the composite deity Ra, and Ra represented the daytime sun. So just to juxtapose that, Amun represented the sun in the underworld. And the upside Am- down. The upside down. And Amun was the previous worshipped main main guy, right? Right. Or one of them. So there were many. There were many. So King Tut's father kind of focused it all on Aten. When King Tut came back to power, he was like, not really crazy about this, which is really strange because this kid is eight. I mean, that's advanced thinking for an eight-year-old. It is, so just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. He might not be doing all the thinking for himself. That would be my assumption. I know how eight-year-olds work. So he did remove the Aten aspect of his own name and replace it with Amun, so Tutankhamun. Right. And he did move the capital back to Thebes. So his father had moved the, the capital away, and he now reclaimed it. Also, we forget the, the first capital of our own country was Philadelphia. That's true. So his first act as pharaoh was to remove his father's mummy from the tomb in Akhenaten and rebury it in the Valley of Kings. Is that a good thing or is that sacrosanct? Because I, feel, I feel like it could go either way. Well, it's not necessarily good or bad these days but at the time it was like your body is supposed to rest in its place for x number of time but moving the it to the valley of kings which is where um king tut's um lineage or his his uh tomb was discovered oh that became kind of like where they started burying all of the pharaohs and all of the really important people at the time so it wasn't valley of kings when he moved his father there it became that when modern historians were like there are a whole bunch of kings here. Let's call it the Valley of Kings. That, I don't know. I'm going to say that that's right. <laughs> <laughs> My research said move to the Valley of Kings. I'm sure it might not have been considered that at the time. Right. Um, but then be kind of became. But, you know, I, I do know that it was really important at the time to keep. It was a very segregated kind right. of situation. So it wouldn't surprise me if they had kept all of those separate the, the whole time. He had a really short reign. And we'll kind of get into it. Um, And he was known for bringing things back to the way that it was before his father's time. But the most important part or the most interesting part to me is um, that during his time, he had an advisor named I. E-Y-E? A-Y. Pronounced I. was close. You were close. And he was considered to be like the power behind the throne. Okay. And because King Tut was literally a child during uh, the ruling of this country, you know, I would have been responsible for providing counsel and, like, weighing in on any decision-making. It almost sounds like you're inserting yourself into the story. Like, I would have been responsible. That was pretty much me. 
This I made is, all those decisions. This is why you picked this story, so it's that you exactly could right. insert yourself into history. Well, I mean, I think it's just like any, you know, ruler. Obviously, they have people on their team. But, I mean, there's a reason, obviously, why you have to be a certain age to rule now. Because... Right. Because you can't be eight years old and be expected to know anything about anything. I mean, I felt like our country's been ruled by an eight-year-old for the past four years. Thank goodness it was only four years. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> It you're felt right. like so I'm much like, longer. It felt like eight, but you're right, it was four. So King Tut's reign was not particularly noteworthy. I mean, he made uh, like the the decision to change the religion back and everything, but like his his role was such a blip on the radar. But what made him really famous was his death. Ooh, intrigue. He passed in 1324 or 1325. Um, so he died Wait. at just age. This is BC. Okay, I was BC. about to say, my goodness, Mm-mm. that's like the time of the Queens of England. No, this is BC. BC? So okay, I should have known that. Sorry, thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. He died at just 17 or 18 years old. Aw. Right, Poor little guy. But after death, um, and through tradition of the times, that person would be mummified. So I'm about to walk you through the steps of mummification. I'm so excited. Hey! Is this like the brain through the nose thing? This is exactly the brain through the nose thing. I'm so excited. So we use um, the word mummification to describe like dehydration sometimes in modern times, like like mummified fruit right. or something like that. Or, you know, anything that you find shriveled up in your wall or whatever. Yeah, I found a mummified no. uh, groundhog on a farm once. What? It was just a dead groundhog that looked like it had been mummified. Right, right. I I don't think anyone actually took the brain out of the nose. I guarantee you. The the traditional context involves removal of all the internal organs. So technically, taxidermy would be considered mummification. Oh, okay. We have modern mummies. We have modern mummies. Ancient aliens and modern mummies. Yes. Filling all of the towns in rural America. Um... Here's how mummification works. Are y'all ready? So ready. So your first inkling was correct. You insert a hook through the nose or near the nose, and you kind of, kind of scramble it around. Um, I would just like to clarify: is this COVID testing or is I know, this right? mummification? It feels very invasive. <laughs> um, so you stick it up the nose or near the nose, and you pull out the brain through the nose. So this keeps all your cranial shit intact. You can also make a cut in the left side of the body near the tummy and you move all the internal organs. You let the internal organs dry, okay? And you place the lungs, intestines, stomach, and liver inside basically a jar, okay? Huh. You place the heart back into the body. Right. Because the heart wants what the heart wants. (laughs) <laughs> so you rinse the body with wine and spices, which is exactly how I want to go. Absolutely. 1,000%. Um, I'm putting that in my living will. So well. you cover the corpse with salt for 70 days. Okay. So you jerky the person. <laughs> After 40 days, you stuff the body with linen or sand to give it more of a shape. Okay. So at that point, the body is kind of caving in on itself. Because right. you've taken all the internal organs out, right? Right. Okay. So stuff it full of paper. Yep. Or linens or... Salt. Salt. S- sand. 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 Um, and then after the seven days is over, you wrap the body from head to toe in bandages. So that's where we get the mummification, literal, like Scooby-Doo. That's what a mummy is. 
Um, and then you place in the sarcophagus, which is the type of coffin. Uh-huh. And that person is laid to rest. Very cool. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Um, I just read a book about... Um, of course you did. Death in Egypt. Are you fucking kidding me? It's called uh, The Book of Two Ways, and it was written by Jodi Pico. Um, oh! I know. I love Jodi. Oh, a white woman that proclaims to know everything. Yeah, but also does a lot of research. Her son has a degree in Egyptology, which is how she got turned on to this. Wow. Um, and she spent multiple years researching the topic. No, so, I do love her. I do I, love her. I know. I know. And I know that you love her. I love her so much. A little I formulaic say, sometimes, but... Well, she's... I mean, she's a millionaire. Yeah, so. and she's written how many I books I always now? said Jodi Picoult. I know. I did, too. And then I went to a book reading where she was interviewed by Judy Bloom. <gasps> and Stop. I did. During COVID, in fact. What? Yeah. My mom and I had a big glass of wine and listened to Jodi Pico and Judy Bloom talk about books. That sounds fantastic. It was so good. So I'm wondering, the book takes place in, like, Middle Egypt, and I think, like, King Tut's dad is mentioned in the book, though it could be a different king. Oh. So I'm wondering if there was anything about paintings that go inside of the sarcophagus and the research that you did. And if not, maybe different times in Egyptian history. There's not. So we'll actually get into his tomb. Oh, cool. Yes, okay. we will. And, and, but the short answer is probably not. Okay. For reasons that will become obvious. So um, we're going to look at death through the Egyptians' eyes during that time. So Egyptians at the time believed in immortality. So death was just kind of like a stepping stone, kind of part of the process so it wasn't necessarily feared. It was more like, you know, people who adamantly believe that there is something next for them. So it right. wasn't as much of a big deal. So to ensure that they continued to the afterlife, people worship gods during their lives and theoretically even after. So they were mummified, as we discussed, so that the souls could return to the actual body, the physical body, giving it life again. So they put food, water, gold, riches, all of those were placed in the tomb because they believed that the person was literally going to pop up and be like, let's go. I mean, feel free to stick it in my tomb when I die. Exactly. (laughs) We got to be somewhere. (laughs) You know, going big into the afterlife or back into this life. And that's why um, tomb robbing was such a big thing. Because everybody, I mean, it's basically like burying your wallet or a treasure. Right. And being like, well, this is where it is. And then people, like, of course they're going to fucking steal it. But, like, also that would create, like, really bad karma. Yeah, I would hate to be that person in the next life. They came back as a gnat. Also. Mosquito. Yeah, I mean, especially, like, a king. Ooh. You, you're coming back as a tree. Right. <laughs> If you're lucky, not even an ent, but a tree. Also, it reminds me of the mummy. Have you seen the mummy? I've seen pieces of the mummy. Okay. Well, there's like ancient little, like, um, scorpion, not scorpion, like beetle looking things in your flesh. Uh, Scarabs? So my grandmother and grandfather went to Egypt a few times. It was their favorite country to travel to. Nice. And they used to have uh, scarab bracelets that were made out of those, like, flying beetle things. So that was actually, like on trend jewelry Wait, was it like the um like the plague beetles like from like that like period? the locusts yeah i my grandparents weren't that old no <laughs> i know but I don't know. <laughs> um i i really don't know much other than scarab <laughs> bracelets were a thing well i'm pretty sure this was like a cinematic um experience so i'm pretty sure it wasn't real it was flesh-eating beetles 
So the journey to the underworld was actually considered to be very dangerous. Like going into the fire swamp yes! from the Princess Bride. That's exactly right. <laughs> R-O-U-S-S. R-O-U-S-S everywhere. Side note, in Cape Town, when I was studying abroad, there are literally huge, like, rodent-looking things, and they have teeth. Nope. Like, they literally nope. look like R-U-S-S, and they live on uh, Table Mountain, which is, like, the big kind of... His- it's, I mean, it's the big fucking mountain. I don't believe you. No, they're fucking real, and they're terrifying. It's like the uh, Chupacabra... Mm-hmm. Is that yeah? They're fake. I I don't know what you saw. You are wrong. The chupacabra fun factor Rooney has evolved over time. People, I think the chupacabra is even confused about what it's supposed to be at this point. <laughs> they are indeed the R-O-U-S's from the fire swamp. You think so? Probably. It's well, one maybe. and the same. Yep. Okay. So, so okay. So your body would travel on a solar bark, which is one of those long kind of gondola looking ships. Right. That you see in, like, a lot of ancient uh, kind of Egyptian... Like a mix between the Viking and the... Exactly. Uh, the gondolas in Italy that yeah. they still use. Right, exactly. Take but, those, like, really important, you know, and this now is a king. Egypt. This is a yeah. pharaoh, okay? So it would pass through the underworld, which had serpents, which also were armed with knives, which is confusing. I don't like that. They don't have arms. They don't have arms. So I'm just like, it's like a pirate in the teeth kind of wading through the, the water. Nope. Thing at this point. I'm going to have to give that a hard pass. <laughs> uh, not interested. <laughs> there were also dragons that had five heads. Like Fluffy. Like Fluffy. Exactly. Fluffy on steroids. Fluffy only had Also three. like Hercules style, like you kind of slice the one off and then it just kind of yeah, multiplies yeah. from there. Our Greek mythology audience is going to be yelling the name Freaking of the out. actual Shout out. Right. five-headed demon whose name right. I forget. It's fluffy. It's fluffy. Okay. <laughs> um, so once you arrive to the, quote, land of gods, the person who passed would have to pass through seven gates. Like Dante in reverse. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and they would have to say, like, magical spells at each of the gates. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Alohomora. <laughs> Penis erectus. <laughs> So these words had to be said, like, word for word. Mm -hmm. And if they were able to say it everything right, then they would go through into the place of judgment. So you have to audition for your... This is all, like, this is it. This is the big audition. But um, they put, like, spells, spell books and everything, like, in the tombs as well. So they were like, I know you haven't studied this because you were a terrible person. So I'm going to put this in there. Right, from your just desk. in case. So you can read. It's like an open book test. It's like the cheat sheet that you, exactly. you know, had up your sleeves exactly. <laughs> before your history That's test exactly in right. high school. One time, I had something written on my hand, and my gram, my Louisiana grandmother at the time was like visiting, and she's like, "What's on your hand?" And I was like, "Nothing." And like ever since then, I've been like super, like I can't because Mother Teresa just like was like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. So um, in our school, the cool thing was to write it on the liner for your plastic water bottle so that you oh would say that and you could read it through the water bottle we were next level <laughs> what you didn't just plug it in your t9 <laughs> <laughs> we may have done that too right we weren't allowed t9s anymore why not or water bottles because what? we would cheat with them well how the fuck else are you going to calculate on your math test well i mean i don't suppose cheating is as big an issue on your math test you need more champagne is mm-hmm. that what you're pointing at yeah. so the gods of death would then perform a ritual called the weighing of the heart i've heard about this oh you have i think so perfect there will be a quiz at the end 
Can I have a cheat sheet? (laughs) Right. Will you stick a book in my tomb? (laughs) Yes. So this is um, would judge whether the person's earthy deeds were basically like whether like were you a good person. So this is like the super judgy part. They're like, are you in or are you out? You can't sit with us. The confession portion is next. So how many gods do you think would be appropriate to listen to your confession? Like what, like ballpark? Um, I'm going to have to go with 42. It's the answer to everything. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> what? Is it 42? No, it's 42. <laughs> Are you kidding me? It's literally 42. Shout out to Hitchhiker's Guide St- to the Galaxy. Oh, did you know that? Yeah. <gasps> okay. Wait. No, yeah. it's, it's Hit- really... No. Oh. <laughs> I just read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy uh-huh. again and watched the movie not too long ago. And the, it's 42. I So Hitchhiker, who wrote Hitchhiker, whoever wrote it stole it from the ancient Egyptians. That's what you're telling have. me. So 42 gods listen to the confessions <laughs> of the person. Okay. That's fucking hilarious. They listen to your confession. And I don't want that many people listening to my confessions. Uh, I don't even want one. I mean, I'm not Catholic. No, that's... I mean, Ray has to hear me complain about everything but that's pretty much it and you i talked to my cats and you yeah that's about it so their heart was then placed on a scale and then counterbalanced by feathers like the light (laughs) that's kind of cute that's like the hardest thing to counterbalance anything oh have you heard this joke um Uh if you throw a pound of feathers and a one pound bowling ball off the roof which Mm -hmm. one's going to land first they're at the same time because they're the same weight exactly Um, so if the weight was equal, like in, in your joke scenario, the person would achieve immortality. Okay. Okay. And if not, their heart would be devoured by the goddess Amament, And this meant that the person would not arrive to the afterlife. What if you just got a big heart? I guess big hearts are modern day. No, everybody's heart was really tiny and inbred and really hungry and just really sad. I know. Have you ever seen the Prince of Egypt? So when a pharaoh passed through the test, so when King Tut passed the test, he would have become one of the god. He would have become a god in the afterlife. And then um, he would have gotten back on the boat, back on the booze cruise, and he would accompany the gods until he reached paradise and thus everlasting life. Amen. Amen. Isn't that sweet? I I used to go to church. I used to know Jesus things mm -hmm. under Mm -hmm. his eye. (laughs) exactly that's all i've got so we know obviously king tut died and so now he's like journeyed through this whole path so the next part of my story is to kind of go through what happened after he died so there's more to the story there's more there's like two pages more but wait are you available like do you need to be somewhere um i think i've got a few more minutes for you perfect So, beginning in 1915, there was beginning, like, an excavation of the Valley of Kings. So, a man named Theodore Carter discovered the actual tomb of Tutankhamun in November of 1922. Okay. So, in his tomb, there were 5,398 items found in the tomb. That would have been my guess if you had asked me what how many items I'm not asking you anymore, CIA, because you're full of shit. <laughs> also, yes. No, I mean, I'm really proud that you guessed. That was, like, the best thing Thank that's you. ever happened to us. <laughs> so, in the tomb, there was the gold sarcophagus, or the coffin. There was also a face mask, which is very on-brand for the time. Right. 
There were thrones, archery bows, trumpets, furniture, food, hashtag wine, and even uh, fresh linen underwear. Well, you need a fresh pair. You need a fresh pair when you are traveling to meet <laughs> the gods. Completely accurate. Cannot go with dirty Nothing underwear. worse than forgetting your underwear. It's all over from there. Did your mom ever tell you oh, that your underwear needed to be clean every time you left the house in case you died so that the police if they what? saw your underwear <laughs> would, uh, like, if you had to go to the hospital and they had to cut off your clothes? Your mom never told no. you this? Are you okay? Is this <laughs> I, the reason? I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, I know your mom and that makes a lot of sense, but. Yeah, so uh, King Tut and my mother have a lot in common. I'm sure we'll talk more about Which your rhymes mother. with Tutankhamen. Tutankhamen. A lot in common. <laughs> so they open the actual coffin and they find a really, really intact mummy of King Tut. So this is, you know, back in 1922. So basically they take him out and then there's a long period of time where people are doing research on him, trying right. to figure out who he is. In 2005, he gets a CT scan. Dun, dun. Dun. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wait. Modern technology solving ancient yeah. questions. Exactly. I love that. So the results from the CT scan showed that King Tut had a partially cleft hard palate and okay. confirmed that he did have a mild case of scoliosis. If that's it, I mean, he's doing pretty good. It's not it. Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> um, the scan also showed that his right foot was flat and that his left foot was clubbed. So these things may have forced him to walk with a cane. And considering this, they would have considered him to be disabled. So he would have been a spoonie. He would have been a spoonie. 1,000%. Not an invisible disability spoonie, a much more obvious exactly. spoonie. Yes. So he would have had, we don't really know why, but part of it I think we can assume can be because of the his genetic situation, right. but he was not dealt great cards as far as his physical. I mean, we know from the previous things I had said earlier is that he's like a super tiny guy. Yeah. He's five, six, and we know that men don't stop growing at age 18 or 19, but that, right. you know, gives us kind of an idea about where he's going to be. Yeah. So what they noticed about his tomb was that it was really, really small. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the pharaohs had had really, really large tombs because they'd essentially been building them. Their entire lives. From birth. Can you imagine like being born and immediately people are like, well, let's start building this tomb. That's that's how I feel about life insurance. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) really like kind of it's kind of awkward, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, my dad sells life insurance. We <laughs> keep going back. To this. But yes, it's it's very much like buying life insurance for your kids. It's very yeah. It's kind of concerning, but also important. So um, we know that his death probably occurred really unexpectedly, considering that he was so young. So one of the theories is that before that his tomb was able to be completed, that he was buried in the tomb intended for someone else. Okay. Something that else was that was like super weird was that the placement of the mummy was also off in the tomb. Was he so, not facing the right direction? He was facing the right direction. He was in our a sarcophagus, but basically the the idea at the time was that the mummification was rushed. Oh. Mm-hmm. So also there was basically the fluid that the the embalming fluid mm-hmm. basically was touching his skull which indicated that when he was buried he was buried and embalmed Alive. with a f- 
with a fresh wound that was unable to heal before the time that he passed. Are you telling me that King Tut was murdered? Is the, Did this just become a true crime podcast? <laughs> We're going to get into it. So the embalming fluid on the on the skull could have been either something suspect or it could be that it was done by an inexperienced uh, embalmer. I'm, you don't bring in the pitch hitter to... Don't worry, we're going to get to it. ...to bat when the king dies. Listen, listen. You get the best. So what we do know is that the, the tomb was robbed at least twice within months of the initial sealing of the tomb. Bad karma. Yeah. The location of the tomb was lost, okay? People couldn't find it. They didn't know where it was, possibly because of a flood or just because the soil had kind of built up, but um, they literally, basically, it was like overflown with soil and they literally built stuff on top of it. Like That seems a little never disrespectful. See exactly. This is why it was so well-preserved, and this is one of the reasons why it's such a famous case, not really because he was that cool of a pharaoh but because we know much more about him than we do a lot of the other ones right there are a lot more clues scooby-doo would have been all over this the other reason is for all the things that we don't know about him mainly how he died i am suspecting murder at this point so we're about to get into the theories of his death Ooh, okay i'm ready for it let me have another sip of wine okay please do so genetic testing of his dna which is like so cool but like the fact that they could do this is just like i mean how many thousands of years later it revealed indications of malaria that was a thing back then yes so the team discovered dna from several strains of the parasite indicating that he was repeatedly infected with several strains of malaria man that sucks isn't that fucking terrifying you'd think that they would have had better mosquito nets you would in think, the palace. but also, you know, it's it's northern Africa, which is balmy. It's balmy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, humid. Malaria infections may have caused a fatal immune response in his body. Okay, so that's one theory. Yeah, I'll take it under advisement. What's the next theory? The CT scan also showed that he had suffered a compound leg fracture. Um, I think that further indicates murder. <laughs> So embalming substances were present where the fracture was, much like the brain, indicating that it was associated with an open wound Murder. and no signs of healing. So it could have been a leg injury gone wrong. I mean, I suppose it's possible like he tripped and fell down the steps. Yeah, like where it has, saved me. Yeah. I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> do you remember those? I do. I remember like being home from school like on sick days. And watching commercials. Like watching Mari and also like the Life Alert commercial. Yeah, yeah. I was told not to watch TV when I was staying home sick from school. So, of course, that's the first thing I did. Of course you left. did. Wait, yep. Why wouldn't she let you watch TV? Because if we were homesick, then we needed to be resting, not oh. watching TV. The third uh, theory is that it was a chariot accident. Like in Prince of Egypt. Like Racing in Prince of the Egypt. Chariots. Exactly. Yeah. So it has been suggested that the young king was killed in a chariot accident due to a pattern of crushed, like crushing injuries. Okay. So including the fact that the front part of his chest wall and ribs were missing when they pulled out his, when they discovered his remains. I think I would have led with this theory. This seems plausible. However, um, considering his health, 
It is unsure whether he would have been riding a chariot at all. And theories um, have developed about him falling forward on the wheel of the chariot, crushing his chest. So instead of him, so they're like, we don't really know if he's going to be riding a chariot. If he is, and he would have fallen forward on the wheel of the chariot. Okay. Kind of a sideways fall because the horse is in front of you. Right. It's kind of a large basket thing. There's two wheels on the side, crushed by the wheel. Thank you for that diagram. I feel like I have a much clearer image of how that fall would have had to have taken place. Good. Um, Um, That's what I'm here for. However, the missing ribs were unlikely to be a result of the injury. So we're going back on this theory We're going back. Because photographs taken at the conclusion of the excavation in 1926 show that the chest wall was basically pretty much intact. So, and he was still wearing basically like a beaded collar. And the absence of both were at the 1968 x-ray that this was taken. So someone took off his somebody funeral ripped, garb. Somebody ripped his fucking necklace off and took part can, of him with him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Karma? Can you imagine walking into someone's house and they're like, yeah, this is the front of King Tut's rib cage. Oh my God. I know it's hanging on a mantle somewhere. <laughs> God bless him. I have a story for you after this. So basically what they're um, attributing that to is that there were robbers, essentially, that that snatched that shit and ran. Mm -hmm. So there's also a murder by blow to the head theory. Uh, I would take that theory for $200. (laughs) (laughs) So this is theorized as a result of the the x-ray, which showed that two bones, fragments, two bone fragments inside the skull. So most people uh, suspect his right hand person right right his advisor um because um i ended up ruling right after king tut highly suspicious super suspicious also i was buried in the super duper elaborate fucking tomb (laughs) i keep hearing you (laughs) (laughs) no i am still alive you are still alive stop it no elaborate tombs for you so when I passed, he was buried in a very elaborate and large tomb, and it basically became a conspiracy theory after that because... He was buried in King Tut's first tomb! That's exactly right. <gasps> so basically, the the theory is that he died, basically, I, who, who, he was older at the time, so his tomb would have been built. Right. Um, so basically, they put King Tut in the small-ass fucking grave. And they moved I, who only reigned for, like, I think four years. Into King Tut's tomb because it was then finished. Because it was, it was, it was done. I Damn. mean, and pretty much, you know, when you're an advisor to a child, it's really easy to, I mean, he was essentially ruling the country anyway. Yeah. I mean, this kid probably had no real... I mean, he had no real father figure at the time. We got to think about that, too. Right. We were um, rolling back, mm-hmm. making executive orders, first day in office. It's tough. Yeah. So I think that that's probably the most... That's the that's the theory that I kind of cling to. But the cherry accident is what a lot of people... Is that it was unexpected. But however, because... I mean, he was, he was disabled. I mean, he right. couldn't walk without a cane. 
which yeah. is what we learned from his tomb is that they found. I mean, besides CT scans, he had canes in his tomb so that he could walk in the afterlife. And I just don't see somebody who is such a tiny person with such possible balancing issues to Riding be able in a chariot. to ride a fucking chariot. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible because I assume that's the main form of transportation at I some mean, point in time. And they weren't just for fun races the way that I feel like they're portrayed in uh, the movies. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't expect that he would have driven his own chariot. That's also, it would have been at least a two-person chariot. So what happened to the other person in the chariot? Oh, chariot, your golden waves. Look at you. Isn't that a churchy song? No, it's by Gavin McGraw. (laughs) (laughs) There's a... Amen. Oh, I know what song you're talking about now. I was thinking there's a church song about riding away on a chariot that I sang at church camp. Oh, amen. 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 Um, But that's the story of... uh, Well, with my track record for being right about things today and always... um, Are you a Capricorn? (laughs) (laughs) My Capricorn tendencies are showing through. Mm -hmm. I am going to go ahead and safely say that it was murdered that he was murdered and uh that I did it I'm gonna speculate <laughs> hey. hey that was just too fun to to miss exactly it really no it really was excellent job excellent story thank you so much your storytelling abilities are top notch oh, thank you so much and I enjoyed that so much I have some awards from debate class for storytelling do you really yeah I'm a part of the yeah I mean, you know. I mean, it's in my blood. way to flex. Thanks. <laughs> way to flex. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, um, CA, how do these uh, topics intersect? I think that the most obvious intersection, of course, is that King Tut was a disabled king and probably came from a long line of people experiencing disabilities because of the inbreeding that we know happened in royal lines. Right. So yeah. when we're looking at disabilities back then and today, people taking advantage of people with disabilities, considering he was murdered by his right-hand man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fact. You heard it here <laughs> first. Or second, folks. <laughs> um I think what's interesting about this is that disabilities didn't preclude him from being able to be king. That's a good point. Whereas in today's society, I mean, we've had a disabled president. Yes, we have. Uh, We've had a president who was... uh, uh, Polio. Yeah, who used a wheelchair. Yes. And I think when he came into office, he may have been an ambulatory wheelchair user. Like, not always, but most of the time. Well, they had him, and this is Roosevelt we're talking about. Right. They had him standing at the podiums before people got there. Exactly. So, so that, that they wouldn't know that he was, which, and, and also media was different this way. There was, the communication was different as right. far as. There were no, you know, cameras doing 360s right. on stage. Um, Either you saw it or you didn't. Right. But even for him to be president, he had to appear as though he didn't have a disability. Sure, exactly. Um, so I think we're getting back into ableism. So I think it's really interesting that the royal throne or the pharaohdom was passed down to a child who was obviously disabled. And I'm sure that people still took advantage of him. But I'm curious what that would have looked like yeah. at that time. Well, also, my my thinking goes towards, like, the most important thing is that it's passed to a bloodline as opposed to, like, a qualified right. individual. Yeah. Um, Which is just the how they did things but it is concerning to know that the entire country and the well-being of those people were trusted from a child's perspective when you know we know that the age of consent is is you know essentially twice the age that this kid was when he 
Yeah, I'm he hadn't even reached the age of consent when he died, really. Exactly, exactly. I mean, men's brains don't fully develop until they're 25. Or um, later, possibly. Or later. Again, I think that we found an interesting overlap in in our topics. But I I'm, would be interested to learn more about how disabilities were perceived by the ancient Egyptians versus today. Absolutely. And, and ancient, like, uh, just in history in general... Um, I think that the kind of monarchy way of ruling was very popular at the time. Right. It's a bloodline, right? right? And regardless of who it is, it's their right. You're right. I'm thinking, actually, if we would like to pick up from Egypt and move to Russia for a moment and think about the Romanovs, mm-hmm. the only male born to the uh, the Tsar... Alexander, I'll have to look up his name. <laughs> I'm like looking into your eyes, like I cannot help you. <laughs> so um, the the czar of the Romanov family um, mm-hmm. had all these kids, and the only boy was a hemophiliac. So he oh the bleeding, the free bleeding, right? Yikes. So he was, which is not he, good for quail hunting and raccoon hunting and all the hunting that they do, or for being murdered, which is essentially what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag King Tut. <laughs> oh my God, you can't be royal anywhere. You can't be royal with you a need disability. You service all the time. I just think it's interesting that we're able to draw these parallels from ancient Egypt to the Tsar of Russia in like the early 20th century, late 19th century. 20th century Fox. Mm-hmm. 20th century Fox to, um, to today. Mm-hmm. And just how the, or, and even FDR, like... There's so many parallels to be drawn here. Yep. Absolutely. Look at us talking about disabilities for a whole episode. I love it. I Me too. It's funny because they totally went together. They absolutely did. I like when this happens. I it's too. fun. It is I feel fun. like we're on the same wavelength. We totally are. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at pod without an odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.